Bandwidth for the Weird Things Podcast provided by Wired Tree. For sites of any size and world-class customer service, head on over to wiredtree.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, goblins of all ages, welcome to the Weird Things Podcast. I'm Andrew Main, joined by... Justin Robert Young and Brian Brushwood. Yeah, yeah. Tried, we both are here. I tried to, I tried to induce it by faking like I was about to take a drink. Is that right, Andrew? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> Difference is, I don't care. So, uh, yeah, for those of you listening now, that's my fun little game. As I do the intro, is to try to trip up my my buddies here because we all like decide as soon as I do the intro and say I'm Andrew Maine and here's Brian, here's Justin. We all I'll get thirsty immediately. It's Pavlovian. <laughs> Andrew just turns back to camera and says, that's my secret. I'm always drinking. <laughs> <laughs> he turns into a 12-foot-tall robot and flies away. <laughs> guys, 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 enough of the nonsense, all right? Let's get right into this. Yeah, we got to get weird. What's up? Dude, I've been working on a project, and it's been some science-related stuff and looking up fun facts and things like that. And, you know, I was, I was thinking about dragons, Wait, hold on. Like, you realize that my daughter, Penelope, is utterly and completely obsessed with dragons. Like, uh, on her Christmas list, she wrote, I only want one thing, a dragon. And, uh, like, I'm trying to talk to her about, like, okay, well, we haven't found any dragons. And they're like, no, dragons are real. So I was like, okay, assuming they aren't, how would we get as close to your experience of a dragon is real? Maybe we could take the brain of a dog, put it in a robot body that's, you know, a giant uh, Chinese dragon style or whatever. Like I'm, I'm working on this. Like the uh, dragons are all about our household. Brian, I solved it. Talk to me. Wait, hold on, Andrew. You, you're just going to step in here and offer a one-stop solution. I solved it, guys. I solved the dragon thing. I figured out the mystery. By I mean, figure it out. I mean, I found other people's research and, <laughs> and, and will now take claim for it. And adding my own little, my own little twist on it, which I did not see mentioned, but. Probably was, so just because I haven't really looked deeply into it. But I'm going to take credit, and I'm going to offer some very good evidence here. Okay. Dragons solved. Dragons, colon, capital F, fact. Well, uh, that, okay, that's the BuzzFeed uh, clickbait headline. <laughs> what, what's it say uh, no, once I is, click on it? won't believe this amazing thing I found out about dragons that, you know, will help you lose weight. Or something. <laughs> right. What happens next will surprise you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I so, can't stop screaming after seeing number six. <laughs> <laughs> I was doing some research on dragons, you know, as a grown man does, and I – Notice something in descriptions of European dragons. When I say I notice, this may have been pointed out to me, but I notice that somebody called attention to this for me. There are dragon stories and mythologies all around the world, but let's focus on European dragons for a moment, okay? Yep. When you yep. look at European dragons, tighter you, pants. You, you see, you'll see, you'll see paintings describing them, right? Which are kind of cool, but. If you read the actual textual descriptions, it gets a little bit different. Now, some people are saying right now, Komodo dragons. They ain't in Europe, guys. Ain't going to fly, okay? We got to solve the Europeans. Why are Europeans obsessed with dragons? If you're, in, if you're in India or Southeast Asia or something like that, and you come across a Komodo dragon, I'd be like, okay. If you're in Australia and they had this friggin' thing that was like, you know, this tall croc that was giant, and you like, they had 
they had real beasts there that were dragging. I, mean, I, like, I would imagine, wouldn't they? Uh, wouldn't they just assume every fossil of a dinosaur is a dragon? You know, that was a conventional idea. That was an idea that maybe every time we found some sort of you know dinosaur bone, that they were like, "Oh, must be dragons, must be dragons." Sure. I got one better, Ryan. Okay, I got one better. Okay. Uh, Justin, this is your last chance to uh, to file your entry before it's go time, unless you're carving out a dragon out of alabaster right now. Well, here's where we're gonna go, Justin. Yeah. Do you have any, any 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 theory? Anything you want to jump in there with? Um, people just like talking about stuff, and like there's a lot of cool stuff to talk about, but dragons are way cooler than all that. Well, I'm gonna throw out some little suggestion here. If you read descriptions in European folklore about dragons, here's something they have in common. They often, uh, they, they may, you may see them depicted with wings, but they don't fly. So they may not actually have wings. That could just be something that some artist added. So in, in the, the, the legends, they don't fly, okay? They have, they're greenish. They have thick hides. They live near water and are often sometimes found in caves. Okay. They're Spaniards. Yes. Actually, there's a connection there, Brian. That's is there? <laughs> did, did I just uh, uh, Funny you should it? say that. So, okay, so wait. Start- so are they – I mean like uh, you said they, they don't fly, but maybe bats, maybe some kind of – like uh, if, if we're looking at cave-dwelling creatures, like, like is I, there – What if I told you the story about some guy came across this village, was terrorized by this thing that ate people, could eat an ox, eat a horse – Lived near the water. Nobody wanted to go near it. You tried shooting arrows at it, whatever. Didn't have much. Didn't do much. But it's not a Komodo dragon. Not a Komodo dragon. We're because those are not in Europe. in Europe, right? We're in Europe. Okay. Um, things that are in Europe, uh, 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 I mean, do you think, uh, uh, do any of the legends as they're written involve scales? They describe scale-like or things like thick hides that could be scale-like. Man. Oh, wait. All right. So European, though. We're only looking at European? Well, let's, let's stick to Europe. Let's stick to Europe. All right. Is it a metaphor for the value-added tax? <laughs> here's, here's another thing, too. Is like this legend of St. George and the dragon may have come from Libya, but it's entirely possible that this, these stories, there could be analogs that actually took place in Europe. Man, uh, uh, would, would you say that fur is definitely antithetical to the legends of dragons? I don't think there's fur involved. Okay. All right. But, but, but specifically, do they say, like, and also there was no fur on it? There was no indication that they had fur. And these things were, were more reptilian appearing than any sort of mammal. And I'm going to throw in a little, a little thing to think about here. When we think of Europe, we think of Europe kind of like we do today or maybe a few hundred years ago or whatever, right? Right. We now know that there have been at least two periods within recorded history where Europe's climate was different. You had the Roman warm period and you had the medieval warm period. These are eras in which it got warmer. You could grow things in further north than you could before. They went through climactic change where it was you know, warmer. I, I like, believe one of them like the medieval called, warm period actually was a global phenomenon, by right. the way. And then there was also the, uh, the Holocene Maximum, right? And that's the time when they used to actually uh, uh, grow – they had vineyards in England. It wasn't just a, uh, a, a French affair. Right, which is part of that. So you have, you have these periods where the climate was warmer, okay? Warmer climates mean changing migratory patterns. Oh, shoot. So you're saying whatever it is, 
means the the temperature changes and all of a sudden you start encountering a creature keep in mind this is back in a time when you would be born you would live your entire life and likely never venture 20 miles away from your home and uh and and this is a case where all of a sudden beasts the heretofore uh, you know un, unseen beasts suddenly show up in your in your backyard i am going to show you a picture of a coat of arms from germany hide germany okay okay and i want you to take a look at this and if i were to ask you what animal this was and this is based upon this this coat of arms goes back to like 14th century which was probably based on something earlier somebody was describing a specific thing and you look at this and i want you to tell me what you think this is okay i am loading it over on the big screen here so that we can all see it uh oh my gosh all right, Justin, I'm going to let you go. You're looking at a coat of arms. Uh, $1 if you can name what clearly is that the only animal that could be. Uh, number one, uh, I am right now looking at a white and red coat of arms where somebody is stuffing a pike in the mouth of a gator. And I am only uh, – I can only say that this is uh, the new – Logo for the Florida State Seminoles. Dude, uh, first of all, that, that ain't no gator. That's a dragon. That, there's a dragon if I ever seen one. Uh, well, no, this looks exactly like a gator. And so this is from the highlands or, or, of Germany. Or a, a related species we'll call it a crocodile. Crocodile. Crocodilio. Uh, dude, this – so, so is, that, is that what it boils down to? Is that uh, dragons equals crocodiles? In Europe, in cases of Europe, and probably the, the and probably the origins of Saint George and the Dragon, which was maybe came out of Libya, we're probably talking about Nile crocodiles, and possibly during warmer periods, Nile crocodiles they can swim. They were probably they were in, in further up in Africa. They were further up the reaches of the Nile. Entirely possible one could have swam across and made its way to Europe. Dude. Now you're like Andrew. And- that's a pretty good theory, but. Is there any more evidence behind that? I mean, uh, I guess I could be that way, but that would be, you know, overly skeptical, and I'd be kind of a douche if I were to say that. Well, no, I'm going to say, Andrew, uh, I'm sold. I need no more evidence, but that would be a crappy show because I know you've done more research. (laughs) Well, it turns out in New York, um, uh, the island of Majorca, there is a cathedral or there's a church. And inside that church, they have what was called a dragon at the time. The stuffed body of a crocodile found in the sewer in the 1500s. Oh, dude, are you are you telling me sincerely that the legend of crocodiles in the sewer of alligators in the sewer goes back <laughs> as a real basis? <laughs> and uh, I'm going to send you a link here to this. Uh, Man, look at that! That's amazing. Uh, crocodiles be big, and I absolutely believe that they would call them dragons back in the day. If you just ran across like how, one big of these? Can these, how big can Nile crocs get? These things can get to be 20 feet long, they can weigh a ton or more, they eat a lot. Now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna blow your mind a little bit further here. Now, you think about remember back, it was it uh, about 100 years ago in New Jersey, the, what they think was, think was either great white or bull sharks got up river. And one of the worst shark disasters in American history happened inland in American rivers when these sharks started just going through and eating kids and everybody swimming in there. Because oh you're in a river. God. You don't expect sharks to go up there. That happened. Now, you go back 100 years, 1,000 years or more to Europe, slightly warmer periods, and you have crocs get up there. You get a croc that finds its way all the way up into through the water there. You know, maybe some trader brings a little small one back. Whatever. Gets loose. Takes, you know – to, takes a liking to the area around there, and 
how are you going to describe this thing if it gets bigger, bigger, bigger and starts chomping on people? Well, and plus also I like the idea of a trader being the one that just sort of has one because I would imagine if you are somebody who makes the rounds, you know, back and forth to Egypt, uh, you, you would get what seems like a small curiosity at the time, get yourself a baby crocodile and then uh, take it with you. And at some point it becomes like, oh, crap, this thing weighs almost a ton and is definitely 18 feet long. Let's just get rid of it. And if, at that point, you, you know, it doesn't die. It just, you know, goes out and Yeah, I mean, that, that might have been what happened in Mallorca, Spain. May, that may have been the case there where it was one that got loose. But, it's in, but if we look at the range of these things, it could have been more common that some of these things, 1,000, 2,000 years ago, which – you know, you had the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire, but then you have these regions which were just out there in the boondocks and then don't have sort of the latest information and nobody does. It's not your – what are you going to call this thing if it's – you're not in Africa and you see this? I mean, it, yeah, no, you're right. It's a dragon. It's definitely a dragon. Dragon. So there we go. Dragons solved real, probably Nile crocs that found their way to Europe. Now I'm going to go one step further. Uh-oh. Uh-huh. Just to get an idea of how these sort of myths can build and how these things can grow, I'm going to take you to a modern-day dragon. Oh, my gosh. Okay. I was hoping okay. you would make this smooth, smooth segue. That's so smooth. Tell us what – nowadays, there are no dragons left. Andrew, don't you well, know I, the dragons the have all left? I'm, Brian, I'm not going where you think that I'm going. Oh, okay. Uh, um, it's an this even is a man-eater. It may have killed as many as 300 segue. people. Wait, say again? We're talking about a modern-day legend, a creature that has killed as many as 300 people, right? Nobody's quite sure how many's killed it. There have been attempts to try to hunt this thing down and capture it. Nobody's managed to be able to do it. It's considered one of the largest specimens ever. Nobody knows for sure how big this thing is. All right, so, so well, we're, care. we're definitely not talking about Elon Musk at this point. No, not at this point, <laughs> not at this point. I'm talking about Gustav. Gustav is a killer croc right, that is in Burundi, right? Now, Gustav, some people think Gustav is 25 feet long, right? Holy cow. Some people say he's maybe 100 years old, but he would probably be toothless. Maybe not. Maybe no more than 60, but Gustav is a legendary crocodile. You found Gustav? Yeah. I have. Gustav's uh, uh, a legendary crocodile that has been a subject of documentaries. They actually, there was a movie called Primeval, which was sort of based upon the, try, the pursuit of that. And anyhow, uh, nobody's ever caught Gustav. We don't know if Gustav's, but he's in a remote area that's hard to get to, and he could just survive for as long as he wants. You know, you have other places in Asia, they have saltwater crocs that might get to be 30 feet long. But right now, modern day and age, here we are, 2015, there is a killer croc that's killed maybe hundreds of people. Maybe that's exaggerated. But if you had something like this in Europe or some other place, this becomes – and you don't have Wikipedia to look this stuff up. This is the story of the dragon. Well, um, you know, I, I, I didn't expect to get here so fast, but I guess now is as good a time as any for me to announce that I am currently pitching to Discovery Network uh, my harrowing adventure of being eaten alive by <laughs> Gustav. By a dragon. <laughs> it's called Dragon Bellies, the Brian <laughs> Rushwood story. I'm all in on that. By the way, I, I don't think we ever got the chance to revisit the fact that I was so very, very right on, uh, on our discussion. Right, you were very right on that. Uh, and there's been a change over at Discovery Channel where they're now announcing they're not going to do any more of that kind of content. 
That was. I I would like to point out that I've been promoted. Uh, <laughs> like that was like the new head of Discovery's. Like no, we're we're gonna try to keep it real now. Um, so. Uh, they tried to trap Gustav once, and so apparently they put a trap out there in the cage. They put a cage out there, a 30-foot-long cage. They put a goat inside of there with hidden cameras, different kinds of bait. God, and then apparently uh, the cage, there was stormy weather, and the next day they found the cage submerged and the goat had disappeared. So they think the croc may have climbed into it, and then the cage failed, and then it escaped. Dude, that's uh... – that's a little bit awfully close to uh, to our own Weird Things investigation, Hunting the Night Creeper. These things don't want to be caught, Brian. They're, they're why they're mysteries. They're, so, where uh, is this again? Uh, this Africa? is Burundi. Yeah. Burundi. I mean, Burundi. Like, I'm kind of shocked that something like this could get this famous and not get killed by somebody who even wanted to say that they killed it. Like, especially after you kill, when you're in the triple digits on humans, like, that you have eaten, like, isn't somebody either by under the guise of public safety or just been I mean, gate I, hunting, I would, rolling in and trying to murk this thing? Okay, let's, let's, not, not, I don't want to disparage Burundi, but it's Burundi, okay? Number one, <laughs> humans' rights violators aren't prosecuted there, okay? Fair point. Second, there are a lot of crocs. There are a lot of crocs there. Yeah. It's, it's not just well, well, one. That, that's, that's actually my point is that how many of these deaths do you think are misattributed mis- to, uh, uh, to Gustav, right? Like it's like a, if, if, if you're oh, – the if, Gustav apologist starts. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm just saying like, like if, Dragon my, lover. if my 14-year-old nephew gets eaten by a croc, I ain't going to let him go down just being eaten by any garden variety croc. I'm going to make sure it's clear that uh, freaking Gustav took him down. Well, but like, uh, like my point is like, at some point, there's not you know uh, Edward Sillyworth, uh, big game hunter who like rolls into Burundi because he wants uh, you know Gustav's head in his game room so he can serve his friends brandy. That would actually be pretty dope, to be honest. Yeah, I mean that that happens, but then you know you got to find him. You know this 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 croc has survived for quite a while. And again, there are a lot of crocs there, and you know Gustav's not going to just you know march right up in there. And by the way, we need to announce a new service: Brian Brushwood, crocodile attorney. <laughs> uh, listen, uh, you can look. I'm not denying on behalf of my client that there aren't crocodiles that eat nephews out there. We all know it. We've all lost a nephew to crocodiles. However, <laughs> that does not mean that it is my client's crocodile body. Uh, by the way, I watch the, uh, the I keep watching the trailers for Better Call Saul. I was it just looks- going to say Better Call Brian. <laughs> it sounds so good. It looks so good. You take, you take a look at, uh, for instance, in India with the accounts of tigers eating people. And you have tigers that may have killed hundreds of people. And the problem is, is it yeah, they go in, they chomp on a few people, they go hide in the jungle. You got to catch a tiger. Classic you know? I mean, tiger. Like, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, it's not easy. I can't do it. Did you do it? I mean, you just got to show up with a dead croc, right? I mean, you, you, you take your airboat, you throw some dynamite out the sides, you know, and then you find a corpse. So you're like, ah, we mission accomplished. Yeah. Where's my flight suit and aircraft carrier? And then people get eaten again. Um, but, you know, we could make this happen if you want, po- folks. Wait All you have to do is help us. 
with the Weird Things Patreon. Are you say Are you saying that we will murder a crocodile if you go to Patreon.com? No, nope. I'm going to say we're going to capture one. We're going to take him on tour in a totally safe cage. He totally won't escape from, and let you get up close and pet him. <laughs> Dude, I saw I saw Jaws 3D. Come on, man! I King know how Kong, this ends. Uh, Jurassic Park 2. <laughs> <laughs> Every movie about capturing a wild animal. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't turn out well for you know the animal or the people. Hey, man, we're creeping up on six hundred dollars. That's uh, almost two thirds of the way to our goal of a thousand dollars an episode 382 patrons now's as good a time as any to remind you guys that all you have to do is pledge uh, if you think the show is worth if you ran into us would you buy us a beer once every three years if that's the case then pledge just a nickel per episode you will give us a total of 60 cents per year and after three years on nickel beer night uh we can finally cash in that uh that big old fat paycheck from you uh, yeah, dude. Uh, and this has already gone to uh, our, our new producer on the show, uh, Bryce Castillo. Yep. Uh, Neshcom to you if you are in the chat room. And uh, we're, we're doing uh, a lot of really, really awesome stuff. And, and uh, I think there's, there's a lot of really, really rad things that we are going to continue to do as well as like, I think just since the Patreon, things have been so much more professional that like, now we don't even need to ask each other every Sunday whether or not we want to do the show. Yes. Now we just kind of do the show. It's fallen into a little bit of a regular time slot. This is starting to get a little familiar. It's like we're like now we're not just uh, we're not just friend buddies, as they say. You know, now we're leaving uh, toiletries over at each other's house, making a little nest. Yeah, I would like to point out that now we're to the level where uh, we shame each other when somebody uh, when somebody says, "Hey, so uh, four o'clock on uh, Central Time on Sunday, right?" And then the other two are like, "Yeah, what are you dumb?" Uh, <laughs> and it's like, "Oh, I was just making sure." Can I just say, I look at my neck here. It looks like I've been forced choked. I have no idea what happened there. Uh, it looks like you got branded by the Mighty Monarch. You <laughs> left an awesome M <laughs> tattoo <laughs> on your face. Sorry for our audio listeners. I just noticed that my, you know, apparently uh, my either that or uh, uh, you have the Whatever. the like Andrew. The you have such fair skin that I'm sure it was just some <laughs> pollen that like. You I, know, I, I think it was just me doing this, like doing my my stroking my Adam's apple. See, like, that's it, yeah. Is is this beard envy? Is that what you have? Like now that Justin and I both have uh, uh, beards, you just want to play along. I shaved today. Mm, mm. Yeah. Whatever. Whatever. Lumber sexuals. Lumber. <laughs> Have you heard that? That's the new term for uh, the bearded hipsters who've never wielded an axe or lumbersexuals. <laughs> lumbersexuals, It's yeah. a term. Look it up. All right. I'm on it. Lumbersexuals. Uh, uh, so, uh. gentlemen, remember how awesome it was when we were all up uh, in the early <laughs> morning hours of Saturday as Brian pulls up a lumber. Sorry, looking at lumbersexuals right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I totally remember because I got up like super early and I was like, man, am I glad to be awake at three in the morning. Um, either that or I was asleep. It's, it's hard for me to remember which one. So uh, there was a launch, rocket launch. SpaceX sent their uh, Dragon capsule to the International Space Station 
And along the way, they decided to, you know, it's, it's adorable when people want to conduct a little science experiments. They go to little kids and say, hey, do you want to put a little egg on board a little spacecraft or whatever? Do you, what do you want to send into space? I'm like, I want my ants to eat helium. Whatever. <laughs> SpaceX decided they were going to do a little tiny little experiment along the way. You know, they're going to launch the Dragon to the International Space Station to bring a fresh load of underwear and tang. And they said, you know what? Hey, guys, this whole first stage, this nine-engine primary first-stage rocket, which is like probably 70 or 80% of the cost of the launch, you know what would be cool? Saving it. Yeah, being able to use it again. Because you know what happens normally is we send this thing up, and then it crashes into the ocean. Yeah. So, so now keep in mind, like to set the bar, <clears throat> the, uh, like, uh, for, for 50 years, the play has been fire up a rocket – let the bulk of the mass crash uselessly into the sea. SpaceX yeah. has a daring plan to, it's like, well, what if we landed it successfully and then got to reuse it again and again and again? So in this case, they had a, uh, they had a drone barge out at sea and they announced, and this is the tricky thing. Like, um, you know, on the one hand, they could keep everything secret and, uh, and practice when nobody's looking. But this is what I love about SpaceX is they're unafraid to fail spectacularly right there in public. And so instead, they say, hey, we're going to try to land this on a barge out in the middle of the ocean. Don't know if it's going to work. Hopefully. If so, that would be a huge accomplishment. In other words, kind of you know the first time anyone's ever been able to pull this off ever. If not, we're going to get a lot of valuable data that will help us shape future versions. This is what happens when the when the free market decides to get into space travel. They go, you know, when we don't have an infinite number of checks from the government. Yeah, we got to make the most. How do we save a little money here? Sure. <laughs> uh, so, and but I mean, it's a great. This is this is, launch is made possible, of course, because it's part of a NASA program, and it's you know NASA's being very innovative now in looking for new ways to help encourage private industry and and sort of you know. Speaking of which, did, did you see the travel posters for some of the planets they've discovered on uh, with the Kepler uh, satellite? We'll get that later. We'll get that later. Okay. All right. Yeah, let's back focus on this. All right. So they decided they were going to try to land this thing. So the goal was his rocket takes off. At about the 50, mi- 50 miles up, when the separation happens between the, prime, the first stage and the secondary stage, they're going to take that first stage and then land it back onto that barge, which Brian is showing a picture of. It's, it's, not, it's about the size of a football field, right? And you understand, this rocket is huge. We saw the landing legs for this thing. It's giant. There's not a lot of margin for error. So we're watching this thing live. We see the launch, and they're like, all right, you know, Dragon successfully detached, and it's headed towards orbit. And we're like, yeah, now what about the first stage? And we're like, uh, nobody knew because Mission Control's focused on that. The group that's heading up trying to man- monitor the first stage is in an entirely different part of the country. So sure. people with SpaceX weren't sure what was going on. So it's this kind of like, all right, and now, and like, well, we don't know. Like, maybe tune in later. We'll tell you. <laughs> that's, that's weird because like the, uh, the most – uh, I don't know, the most fundamentally important part of the mission as far as like giant advancements in uh, rocketry and robotics is that first stage. But also that's insignificant. That was bonus to the mission to begin with. Like yeah, the mean, mission they're, they're, was to get, you know, underwear and that was, that was their side project, right? Yeah. Like, like yeah. listen, our, our gig is to get this thing to the International Space Station. Like after work, I, I'm going to try to balance this on my chin. So I don't know. I'll tell you all if it worked out afterward. Right. So. I'm going to read to you the tweets from Elon Musk, which ended up being our primary source because, you know, nobody, nobody was more invested in this literally than it's just, him. It's so amazing that, like, 
the cutting edge of space science is being delivered via Twitter in like abbreviated text speak that is like an emoji short of uh, <laughs> like absolute casual conversation. It's a, like uh, like I I almost I I look forward to the day when an official press release is the. Uh, the shrug emoji from Elon Musk. Like, yeah. So he writes, launching in one minute. Next tweet. Ascent phase good. Dragon deployed to space station rendezvous orbit. Then we're all waiting. Like, okay, yeah, but, but. Rocket made it to drone spaceport ship, but landed hard. Close, but no cigar this time. Bodes well for the future, though. Did, okay, so it said landed close, so it didn't land on the barge. It didn't destroy the barge no, no. coming down. Landed no, 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 no. To the drone space warp, but landed hard. Wait, so so it did it landed so it, too fast uh, is what I took that to mean. That that yeah. it was yeah, it not landed. It hit it. Oh. It just hit it too hard. Dude, Let me continue, Ryan. All okay. of this, all of this spells out to me epic videos incoming. That's all I know. Hold on. Ship itself is fine, meaning the barge. We presume some of the support equipment on deck will need to be replaced. Ellipsis. Next line. This is this is Elon Musk humor here. Didn't get good landing slash impact video. Pitched dark and foggy. We'll piece it together from telemetry and actual pieces. <laughs> Dude, this is this is what it means to to try the ambitious, terrifying thing in the twenty first century. Is you have to be willing to fail spectacularly right in front of the whole world. And I love that Elon Musk is the kind of guy that gets that. Well. Now, to help this thing stay, understand, you're coming from 50 miles up and you're trying to land on a precision point like a helicopter. You've got a lot of different things coming into play and you're, you're not, you know, you're using a thing designed to take you up and not down. So this is a challenge. Also, now, it's foggy. It's foggy too. Now, to help us do this, they have four stabilizers. They're called grid fins that come out. They look like giant racquetball rackets. These things are as big as your house. Gotta understand, they're huge. Right. These, these, these are the things that we saw when we went to SpaceX and we we thought it was an architecture, uh, architectural support strut. And then we realized, oh, wait, no, these are the feet that come down. No, those are not the things. These okay. are totally different. OK, these are grid fins. These are things that are like midway up on the fuselage that actually come out that have the sort of lattice pattern on it that are designed to help stabilize and help it land. Those are the landing legs. But you saw, we saw, okay? So these are grid fins that pop out, right? And so they're designed to move and pivot back and forth and to help the thing precision lands. He writes, grid fins worked extremely well from hypersonic velocity to subsonic. That's a big thing. You don't want those things ripping off. But ran out of hydraulic fluid right before landing. So that apparently that may have been the technical problem is they didn't have any hydraulic fluid. But he writes, upcoming flight already has 50% more hydraulic fluid, so should have plenty of margin for the landing attempt next month. This is huge. And again, remember, all of this is gravy. All of this is just like on top of the, 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 their actual job. Like, like they're, just, they're just doing extra push-ups. Just well, to- here, but, but here, to me, is the most exciting part about this entire experience. SpaceX took a big cut and did not hit the mark. Uh, whether or not you – however you want to define it, right, uh, it, it wasn't what they wanted – and the story is awesome first draft. We're looking forward to when it works. As opposed to SpaceX is a failure. They flew too close to the sun. And look, this isn't going to happen. Oh, yeah. like, and, you have but, to look at this. And so they they'd already called it that there was only 50% chance this, this would succeed. 
what we now know is that one of the biggest problems was trying to land, was trying to hit that barge out of the middle of nothing. You know, 50 miles up. 50 miles up, understand that that is a quarter of the way to the International Space Station. That's okay? uh, that's what, like uh, 10 times higher up than most commercial airline flights, right? They're like six miles up? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this is an incredible thing. It made it there, and they're saying and the fact that the barge is reusable, that it didn't slam into the barge and sink it to the bottom of the ocean is pretty amazing. So this was – this is a big win. This is a big win. No, it wasn't the, the thing, the, the throw the dice and come up the way you wanted to, but this was an amazing big step. So many things worked that they never had the chance to test before. It's cool. Now it's, I'm going to tell you, though, this is, this is Elon Musk. He writes up next tweet, I'm super proud of my crew for making huge strides towards reusability on this mission. You guys rock. I mean, they're happy. They're very happy with what they learned so far. And then his last tweet, not the retweet, his last tweet is uh, – World's top artificial intelligence de- and artificial intelligence developer signed open letter calling for AI safety research. <laughs> by the way, worry about killer robots, dude. What? What? Or, or, or by just the way, irresponsible Elon Musk, robots. Elon Musk is fired up about the dangerous uh, future of AI. Like your grandma's fired up about Obamacare. Like <laughs> he is just on your Facebook posting like everything about like we got to worry about it. You got to worry about AI, man. Like he is into it, which is another delightful quirk. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, um, I don't know. Congrats is all I got to say. Keep, keep on rocking with your crazy self, Elon Musk. Yeah, I, I I'm consistently impressed, and that that's awesome. I just love the fact they're shooting. You know, they're they're really shooting high, and that they've got NASA's on board with this, and uh, from all accounts, seems to be very enthusiastic about this, and would love very much to see this succeed. And it means that we all are going to benefit from it. I mean, Speak- I remember it was only three years ago, maybe even less than three years ago, that Andrew, you were in uh, Canaveral. For a with with Molly Wood, and I forget which launch it was exactly, but me and Tom were anchoring uh, coverage, live coverage from Twit, which immediately dates it. Uh, but I mentioned to Tom, "This is such an exciting time for space," and Tom's reaction was, "Well, you know, uh, a lot of people think that this is a really sad time for space because they're sunsetting." The, the space shuttle and, and NASA's funding is getting cut, which is not – I mean that, that was not a crazy thing to say at the time. Sure. And now, no matter where your take is, it is undeniably untrue. This is an incredibly exciting time for space. Totally okay. agreed. Yeah, and you've got, you've got more players, more people involved. You've got uh, Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos' company, which is involved with – I think Boeing and doing another a crew capsule contract got you. You have rather than just you know two or three defense contractors getting up the getting the lion's share of funding and also dictating how that funding works. It's it's changing, changing for the much 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 better. I think it's a very very exciting point in time. You know, you you could be a kid today and realistically like, realistically think about having a career in space. So, uh. Do, do you want to talk about these uh, these space tourism posters? That uh, yes, let's talk about that. I, I think it's we we talked about last podcast about how uh, NASA had you know released this very very crazy ass idea about oh you know what would it be like to try to colonize Venus and the advantages of that, which I think is adorable but totally impractical from where we stand now. But 
Um, yeah, but, but 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 again, like I, I I will I'll be the first to to rush to defend. I'll be the first dreaming. to rush to defend and say that I encourage that kind of thinking. I beat you there, Brian. How does yeah. it feel? Oh uh, well, crap. I I, I tried to rush, and you were already there. Andrew, it seems like you're playing a little bit of both sides. You can't, you can't <laughs> I, be the one to say, well, actually, and then also <laughs> run to be the first. You can be the second. You could be the I, third. I, I, I don't think I, you could be the first. I would say my my whole thing was like, well, if we're going to rank feasibility of here, this is a much, much bigger problem than people may understand. And we need to understand that. And and let's not say, oh, screw Mars, let's go to Venus. Uh yes, but 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 again, like there's um we, uh, the thing I like about the Venus thing is that it's it presupposes like uh like when we think of Mars, we think of the Herculean task of of actually reshaping the entire environment to making it something that uh, that uh, we can walk around and breathe in. And and granted, like between the two, between uh, Mars and Venus, you know, obviously Mars is is the better equipped to do that. However, there's freedom in the fact that that Venus is so limited that there's one thing that will pretty much never happen, and that's uh, you know us walking around on the surface of it. So instead, it frees us up to think ridiculous other thoughts, like what if we actually made Cloud City? What if we actually made Bespin? You know, and uh, I don't know. That's that's uh, that's great. It's inspiring uh, to me to do that. But but anyway, uh, your, your your point was on the heels of that, uh, you know, ambitious and outrageous thought experiment. Uh, I assume you're going to segue into the fact that uh, that NASA has released a, a series of of uh, travelog posters. Is that what you would call these? Yeah, they're they're reminiscent of what the really cool ones that came out for like Star Wars, like Visit Bespin and, and this, the tourism posters. And and these this is I like this NASA. I lo- again I like the NASA that releases. Hey, wouldn't it be cool to go to Venus? Da da da. I'm all I'm all for that. You know these. You know, dream big, share that big dream with people. And so, why don't you tell people about what they have done now? Uh, yeah, well, so in this case, they've uh, they've created a series of them on uh, various Kepler objects. Of course, Kepler is the satellite that uh, is super precise and able to deduce what kind of planets are floating around, what stars at the moment. And so, they have like a uh, uh, a two sun poster that says "Relax on Kepler uh, 16b" that depicts two suns and the tagline "Where your shadow always has company." They've got uh, another one uh, that says "Experience the gravity of HD 40307g, a super Earth," and this is an Earth-like planet with twice the mass of Earth. And if you look in, you're able to see that uh, that on there it actually gives you details. Of uh, of of uh, what the gimmick for each planet is, and it feels weird to say gimmick, but uh, Kepler eight one eight six F, where the gas grass is always redder on the other side. I'm actually not familiar with uh, with the details on this one. Do you know? Um, I was looking up our next story, and um, uh, it says a Earth sized planet discovered in the potentially habitable zone around another oh, star, how, where okay. liquid water could exist on the planet's surface. Uh, it's one eight six F. Let me look that up. Um, uh, it says it's much cooler and redder than our sun. So, in other words, um, uh, this is this is a a uh, Earth like planet in the habitable zone around a, a, a red 490 light years from earth. The first planet with a radius similar to earth to be discovered in a habitable zone. And, uh, you know, there's so many planets now, Brian, I know um, too many planets, bro. I can't yeah, keep up. Too, you know, when I was many. a kid, there was only nine planets. <laughs> and so it, it's orbits an M dwarf star with about 4% of the sun's luminosity with an orbital period of 129 days. Um, 
So, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's exciting. Look what's out there, you know? No, I, but I guess, I guess back to, uh, you know, thumbs up for NASA, um, man, they have become so savvy over the last five years, five years. NASA had one story, boo hoo, the space race is over. We stopped dreaming. And nowadays freaking NASA's rad as hell, dude. It's like they get it. They have to, they have to do a sales pitch. Absolutely. I, I, funny, I just closed my camera and not my microphone to cough. <laughs> Welcome, I was everybody. I was like, were, were you ashamed that people were about to see you? Come on, I, I could not work, see man. my weakness. <laughs> All right. Well, let's, let's go a little, uh, let's do another space topic before we jump right into picks. You want another one here? Heck yeah. Brian, if I were to tell you there was life on Mars, there's proof of life on Mars, you'd be like, you're some sort of crazy lunatic, right? Uh, well, no, I'd be all like, high five, hooray. But I would immediately ask, like, um, uh, what's your evidence, bro? What's, what's your evs, bro? That's what the uh, Supreme Court always says. Whenever somebody so, comes up, they're like, I didn't do it. And the Supreme Court, they all turn their hats sideways. They all cross their arms, 1990s rap star style, and say, what's your evs, bro? Well... As you know, like that, we're getting wonderful, wonderful data from the rovers on Mars and from like the higher resolution imaging in the surface of Mars. And whenever you have enough photos and stuff out there, you're going to have people zabrutering this thing for everything, any any little shape, anything like this. You know, one of the most exciting things was the possibility. Remember years ago, the face on Mars? Like, sure, ooh, face on. Like you look at that, like man, that. That looks like a face, and I've seen the Mickey Mouse, you know, you know, crater formations. I've seen the the smiley face on the moon, but the face on Mars. Those photos were like, damn, those look pretty neat. Plus, also, like, also, oh. like it had a rad name, Cydonia. Yeah. Come on, man, that's yeah, and freaking... they're like, well, and there are pyramids and stuff. I'm like, all we need is some more high resolution images, and then we got them right. And so you're looking at the those are the old. Uh, I think that was the 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 viking yeah images. the 1970s images those were the good ones then we yeah saw it and then clearly. we got the higher resolution images and, and then, we're like boo yeah it's maybe not a fish it's like it's like uh it's like uh, uh, uh the potato uh, on mars <laughs> it's like like right here this is when you're drunk you're four beers in and that girl's the hottest girl you've ever seen and this is the next morning you wake up you're like that's not a face on mars now i'm gonna i'm gonna sh- i'm gonna show you something that's gonna blow your mind for a second though okay okay all right i want go to google go to google do this our audio listeners can do this too okay, okay. I understand that that face on mars was something like 1976 was when we got those first images right sure. and then like for 20 years really like what is this what is this you know people wrote entire industries of books on this 15 years before that uh 20 years 18 years before that type in this jack kirby face on mars face on mars jack kirby you're talking about the uh the the marvel artist right yeah marvel all over comic artist that was a comic. The first link you see is from a comic he wrote in 1958 holy cow based on mars so he pretty how did how did he not uh, how did he not start a cult based on this? <laughs> well, there's some uh, very interesting follies. So I said that like he wrote this comic in 1958, and then you know, uh, 18 years later, we get photos back from Mars, and you know, go to the go to the good photo, Brian, not that higher resolution accurate one. Boo. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, it's there it is. Back up. You passed it. It's, there's one even better higher up. Oh yeah. Yeah. Go up. Go up. Go up. Go go go. go. Okay. There you go. Oh, Chill there up. we go. Chill this up. one right here. Yeah, look, I mean, that's like, that's uncanny. Dude, I'll tell you what, man, I'm going to start a compound. If I'm Jack Kirby. That's insane. Like, 
Wait, hold on. so this has got to be. There's somebody who's like like the Jack Kirby's part of the Illuminati, and, and oh, oh yeah, that's the theory. <laughs> the theory is that like he had advanced information. That's how he did it, and it's not this wonderfully adorable coincidence. That's that's there literally is that theory is out there that it was some sort of secret CIA NASA intel that he had that he put in there. That's amazing. I mean, that's I'll tell you so what, this good. just makes me want to be utterly prolific and just do a bunch of nutty stuff because that's how you maximize your chances for a home run. Uh, on of this magnitude is just be the kind of guy that freaking has a billion at bats hoping that you know of all the crazy stuff you're gonna say one of them will exactly turn out to be true well that's i mean like like jules verne i mean that that's that's you know the the part of his massive legacy right it's just like like oh look at everything that he predicted it has all come true (laughs) except for the vast majority of it which was utter horse crap yeah so I'm going to throw – what I was going to touch on here is there is a geologi- geobiologist at Old Dominion University in Virginia. God, I love the he, fact that we live in a world where geobiologist is an actual job. Like you can uh, say that with a straight face. Nora Nofke, pardon me, she reported the discovery of some uh, microbial structures that are three and a half billion years ago in Western Australian desert. And a paper published last line, last month in the journal Astrobiology, she details the striking morphological similarities between Martian sedimentary structures in Gillespie Lake outcrop, which is 3.7 billion years old, and microbial structures on Earth. Now, we've identified on Mars, mind you, we've identified lakes, we're like where there were lakes, dried up lake beds. We're like, this confirm, you know, confirms that that. I'm going to send you a link. She is showing these formations, and from her understanding of things, she says, listen, if I found this on Earth, <laughs> The easiest, the logical deduction was these are microbial sedimentary formations. That's what she says. She says this is what it looks like. This is consistent. She points out all these things there. So in a paper coming out in uh, Astrobiology, which is, you know, an actual journal, uh, she points out and says, look at these. These are very consistent with microbial formations. Uh, Dude, that's huge. I mean, okay. So let's do this. Um, At some point – you know how it is, uh, Andrew. You tour around. You're doing a lot of shows. You find yourself with a lot of idle time, and you start um, – I don't know. You find yourself in weird sideways conversations, and I remember talking to my friend Gus Davis on the way out to a show where he asked, uh, hey, if we found out for certain that alien life definitely exists, it's definitely intelligent, it's two light years away, we have received the signal, uh, how would that affect your day-to-day life? And the answer to me was – uh, not at all. It would not change a damn thing because all of the most philosophically important um, occurrences in our life tend to be forgotten the moment we have to show up for work, right? So it's like um, you you can discover that Christ is your Lord and Savior, and the next day you still have to show up and, and, and sell burgers at McDonald's, right? I, I feel like that's what that experience would be. I also feel like that's what discovering life in our backyard of Mars would be like uh, it would be an extraordinarily profound, extremely important thing that in no way would affect pretty much anything in our day-to-day life. I'll give you one sidestep on that, but I want to point out that the curiosity team has looked at this and from their point of view, they think it's a consequence of just erosion and it's sandstone. They haven't reached the same conclusions. They, they, they think, no, we're confident that this is just a very unbiological formation that has created this. 
But I, my point was, is you have a very intelligent person doing very good research. This is not some fringe person pointing at Jack Kirby drawings and very fuzzy photos of Mars. Like us. This is a credible person saying, hey, this to me could be this. It's consistent with that. And it's all the more reason to say, let's get our ass to Mars and start digging up there. Now, what changes? Wait, what does change? Real, real quick, just pause on the discussion. Was that a specific uh, Total Recall reference that you were making? When you say get get your ass to Mars. Why would it not be? Okay. Yeah. All right. Just want to make sure we're on the same page. Get your ass to Mars. Hey, way Got to it. call it out. But he knows no about it. You I'm, don't just, I'm just saying you it. need to, you know, savor those moments. That's fine. I'm sorry. Gentlemen, here's my question for you. If we were to find out that, yes, there was life on Mars, there was a lot of life on Mars, there was microbial life, maybe other forms of life on Mars – Nothing changes for you tomorrow? Not, I mean, first of all, you know, I'm thrilled because the next four episodes of Weird Things are written, and I don't need to invest time or effort into thinking about that. However, I will say that the substantial difference is that once we hear that, it utterly pushes the needle on the odds of life being on other planets. If we know that in our backyard, our, our almost literal backyard, life was creating possibly independently of ours, uh, then that's huge. That suddenly means that the odds of life being out there go up everywhere. I mean, that's one of the weird things, right? Once you have uh, that little bit of data, it shapes the way you see the rest of the universe, which uh, over the next thousand years shapes our destinies. So well, here's, here's Justin, what does it change for you? Uh, you know, to me, everything just, it gets us closer and closer to, to being there, right? Like showing that there is life is, you know, if even on a psychological level, demonstrate, demonstrates to people that it is habitable, that makes us think that we could live there and it just gets us closer and closer. For me, all I got to do is convince one person that I want to live on Mars and, and so does she, you know? And, and the closer <laughs> we get to that, then like I'm willing to pull that trigger, man. That's, that's great. Like, and, and to me, that is a huge step in that direction, that, that there is a form of life means that we are closer to having our life there. God, can you believe, can you believe that uh, I, I think just now in a way that is more visceral than I had ever expected, I just hearing you say that made me – you figure what? Uh, most uh, – between the three of us, at least one of us is going to last 50 more years. At that point, he or she should Harvest have the organs of the other one to keep uh, himself going. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the three, maybe all like three of us in, in one body will survive that long. But like uh, one of us will be wealthy enough to uh, to 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 buy a trip. Like this is a real thing. Like we're we're talking about like uh, one of us. Uh, there's a substantial maybe. Let's say the odds are as low as one in a hundred. But like fifty years from now, there's not a reason that one of us can't die on Mars, and that is. Awesome. I'm going to say, here's, here's what happens. If we find microbes on Mars, then I'm like, my interest in terraforming Mars goes up tremendously. Of course, it'll be like, oh, the environmental damage. Like, listen, we got to live there. We'll dig up the rocks. But, you know, it, because then we say, all right, then probably there are enough resources there for life to exist. Now we can figure out how to make a stable Mars climate. I'm still a big believer, like, just live in asteroids, whatever. Terraforming Mars becomes much more realistic, much more possible. The interest of all of a sudden trying to dig up these microbes and these other things to find out what's there is exciting. If we start to find like vertebrae fossils and stuff on there, 
I'm starting the Planetary Defense Force right now. Wait, so you're assuming like uh, like they already lived, or, or or you're saying that they died for a reason? If they got to the I'm, vertebrate level, I'm I'm saying that if there are other vertebrates or other vertebrate analogs out there, if one if we if within our own solar system we could have two of them develop theoretically independently, then you that know, means cross pollination is entirely possible. I'm like, all right, there's a lot of stuff out there. We need to figure out how to protect ourselves now. Yeah, no, I'm down with that. I believe it. Although I don't know that vertebrate would be the distinction. Like, uh, for example, let's say let's say there was humanoid-sized uh, um, exoskeleton-wearing bug-based yeah, I mean complex. I mean complex multicellular organisms. Sure. Let me look at that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that would be so interesting to see how a planetary defense force would come together. You know, like because it, it, it's one of the things that we always think about whenever if there is a credible force of aliens that like and then the world united. And it's always like that's a very big like, you know, step three question mark, step four profit kind of thing. When you actually think about like if we well, I'll, t- out- I'll, t- I'll tell you what happens in the question mark period. All of a sudden, everybody who looked like an insano fringe person suddenly becomes massively culturally rel- relevant, uh, uh, like I minister mean, of world Hubbard defense working, was working on this problem. It's it's yeah. Exactly. Like, like all of a sudden we can, we can, you know, with the straight face, say minister of, of world defense, Art Bell turned to, uh, to his, uh, uh, co-panelist Alex Jones and the two of them, you know, <laughs> uh, freaking, you know, made policy decisions I mean, that I will just change mean, like, the like, economy. You know, now all of a sudden, like, like you can't have, you can't like, create a planetary defense force outside of the vacuum of the of the global politics that we currently have on Earth, right? So now all of a sudden, China wants uh, you know uh, different economic uh, favors for their inclusion in uh, you know technology for the planetary defense force, or the United States uh, controls it, and everybody complains that the U.S. is leading the the planetary force, right? Like well- that's. Well, th- this is also like if you read um, uh, Orson Scott Card's uh, uh, Ender Shadow series, all all of the Shadow books. You know, uh, basically what he posits is during the time that the Earth faced one enemy and they all unified together under an international fleet to uh, to to take down the buggers. Um, the uh, <laughs> the the moment that enemy is eliminated, all of a sudden we all go back to our regular business, which is you know fighting each other and jockeying over land. Like uh, like it is it is strange and wonderful to me that the mere threat of a universal en- enemy could be what brings world peace to the, well, uh, look at, the look world. Look at look at look at the shape of the world post World War One and then post World War Two, and you look at. Uh, our animosity. Not we. Had, we always had a friendly. You know, we we were we were at war with England once, and then over the 19th century, we kind of grew together. Then all of a sudden, World War One, we become allies. World War Two, we become very very strong allies, and you know now we are very very strong allies with the British, the French. You know, we have NATO. We have this very very common you know group of people that are like we're. We're in this together. You know, we are much, much more united than, than we are for our part. And then you have the birth of the EU. You know, you have these things that now come about. And you have powers that sit outside of that because of geographically, ideologically, they're separate from that. But these things do tend to bring you together. And then, you know, then it, you know, we'll know we're in the future when we wear jumpsuits and we have a council. It's always a council. The council <laughs> yeah. said this. The council said that, you know. When, when all of a sudden all of us appear either on uh, sideways uh, high definition screens or as holographic projections, I, I feel like we could kind of do that right now, where it's just like, mm, 
the the Weird Things Council has convened. I'm afraid, America, you need to go to war with Mars. <laughs> Gentlemen, is it time for picks? It is. Uh, I got a pick. Uh, finished his book called The Martian. No one else has heard about it. I'm the first person to ever talk about it. Uh, it's a book about this guy gets stuck on Mars uh, and his trip to get back. I kind of teased a little bit about it uh, last week uh, because I was uh, getting close to being done with it, and now I am finished with it. Uh, listen, a lot's been talked about this. Brian has, uh, you know, uh, Brian Brian proselytizes for this book like Mormons proselytize for the Bible. <laughs> so, like, uh, you know, there's uh, – you know, I think plenty of, of praise about it. And, and it is all true. It, it, you know, Andy Weir, the main character, is a very uh, fleshed out character. You, you really feel like you know him uh, by the end of it. And, uh, and Andy Weir is the, the writer, not the character. Uh, it's um, Oh, sorry. Uh, Mark Watney. Mark, Mark Watney. Well, Brian, yeah. turns out it's a true story. It's automatic. <laughs> yeah. uh, and there are, there are other, uh, you know, really well done characters. Here is my only my only thought about it is uh, that- by the way real quick pause on this uh for everybody who's tuning in for their first episode of weird things let me explain that uh to us the things that are interesting are not in the spaces that we all agree on it's the spaces where we disagree so understand that this in no way is justin saying that this is a bad book or that it's not totally rad this is him looking for the squirrely space where we can find a disagreement continue yeah I don't know. Listen, if you don't agree with me talking about things, then come at me, bro. Like, I don't give a <laughs> rat. Whatever. Uh, I like the book. Uh, it, uh, it And I think this will be a plus for some people. Uh, you, if you are uh, mathematically minded and, and uh, 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 of a mind that you really, really enjoy engineering – Space engineering and space survival has never been more entertainingly told than it is in The Martian. However, it is a book about that and not necessarily about our characters. Our characters are well fleshed out in the service of it, but at the point that these space survival problems end, the book ends. And as invested as I was at with the characters... I wanted more resolution and more time with them to resolve the human drama uh, about it. Uh, and, you know, so ultimately, like, like, it left me wanting more. I would read another book about, you know, the, the, in, in that continued universe. The Venusian. Uh, what was that? The Venusian. Yes. Well, and I, I believe that there have been rumors of another Mark Watney book being put together and, and whether that would mean him, you know, maybe uh, uh, some other story where there's an interstellar trouble, you know, where he's called in, in Jack Ryan style as a uh, as a consultant for X, Y or Z. Um, yeah. Yeah. Know. You know, it, it's there's so much. I think there's a lot there and, and it is not like when, when I when I say that I wanted more, it is not because it's a cold book. It's not because it's a book written by a computer. Uh, it, it's that there is a lot of room for this kind of stuff and, and on almost every uh, – you know, every relationship that I wanted more fleshed out or to see the reaction to as the events unfold, 
we really don't get it. And, and, and so if there is another Mark Watney book coming, I'm very excited to read it. And, uh, I think that there's a lot there. This is a, a, a fantastic book and I'm really excited. And I'm really excited that I met Andy Weir before Brian did, uh, because now <laughs> I have a picture with Andy Weir and Brian does. Yeah. With you giving me the middle finger, which is yeah. amazing. Andy Weir with the awesome shit eating grin and you giving me the middle finger. It's awesome. Yeah. Uh, Hey, so, uh, John, John Tilton, uh, your friend of mine, uh, mastermind behind most of the great things that have made scamstuff.com possible, uh, got me a little bit on the crack. He leaned over and was just like, hey, Brushwood, um, how would you like something that's going to suck up all your time, provide no productivity, and send you spiraling downstream into a uh, pit of despair? And I said, sounds great, bro. Sign me up. And then he, uh, he pulled out an uh, elastic band that he tied around my wrist, and he pulled out a hypodermic needle, and then he leaned forward and said, uh, uh, don't say I didn't warn you. And then he injected Hearthstone into me, uh, Heroes of Warcraft. Uh, Hearthstone's a, it's, is that like a Dragon Tail tie stick? Uh, yeah, uh, it's, it's a, uh, it, Hearthstone is a, a collectible card game. Uh, in virtual format, uh, it's basically Magic the Gathering with characters and situations from the Warcraft universe. Uh, it's it's free. Is that the stuff that comes from Cambodia? Uh, or- <laughs> no, no, no. It's virtual, virtual. Oh. Uh, it's a virtual addiction, Andrew Maine. Oh. Um, no, I I, I I I I gave it up one night and then woke up the next morning and then uh, my first thought was, you know, it'd be great is uh, a little bit of Hearthstone. <laughs> Why don't I jump in and do that? And so uh, I don't know. I'm enjoying my descent into addiction. And uh, so wait, so do you play primarily on on the iPad on the desktop? Well, like, uh, I know on, that's part on, of that's part the, of what's rad about it is it's cross platform. Correct, correct. Uh, on on the desktop now, I'm thinking about buying an, a new iPad so that I can play it on an iPad. <laughs> And uh, so it begins, and then uh, and then eventually it's going to come out on the iPhone, and then it's all bets are off. Then screw that. Uh, yes, uh, Neshcom points out that I definitely gave it up immediately the first day. Like with I, I saw your quit. tweet. You're like done with this. You yep, know, and, yep, and- yep, 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 yep. Uh, and then the next look. Uh, addictions of, of a strange cycle, Andrew. Uh, you you go through phases of giving it up, and then you pick it up the next day. So I'm I. I that's that's what I'm in right now. Right, I'll be like on my phone, and I'll be like, "Oh, this is awesome. This is wait a second. I'm playing this too much. Like I like I delete threes, the game threes. Yes, I only put it on my phone when I get on an airplane, and as soon as I land, it's gone. <laughs> there are games. It's like that. Like I I Man, wanna, I was I, there. I was there. I bore witness to the great tiny tower uh, Andrew made addiction <laughs> of uh, 2009. Like it gets rough with Andrew. He, he does not play around. Yeah. Uh, yes. Well, I am. I am diving full in on it. It's like, uh, uh, and perversely, there's actually a, a strong upside in that. Like I'm constantly looking for something to occupy my mind while I'm doing uh, the, the the elliptical or or the stationary bike at the gym. And like weirdly, if if Hearthstone gets its hooks in just right. I mean, it's like I can I could achieve you know twelve hundred calories a day of 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 positive movement. Uh, all right, don't don't look at me that way, Andrew. Wow, look at that! It, it is uh, it's amazing to see justification for addiction in action. That's, uh, it's really, really I don't play like my experience has always been like people are like oh you, you don't like video games like no my problem is like I like them. <laughs> um, I remember like my 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 favorite example is like one was 
playing Duke Nukem till I would want to throw up and just laying down in bed until it went away, then getting back up to go play Duke Nukem and yes! going, I think I have a problem. <laughs> this is this is not good. Then uh, dating a girl and playing Grand. She had she had a she had a PlayStation. And I'd play you know I'd say goodnight. I'd go into the living room. I'd play her PlayStation. I'd play Grand Theft Auto until the sun came up and she was on her way to work. Oh my gosh, like, this is not good. And, well, like, that and, one, and, and like, plus also it's a little bit even more uh, confused because like uh, like like Penny. Like, well, I'll trick her into playing a few of my rounds for me, and I'm nothing but proud because, like, she's evaluating risk management. She's doing the math to figure out, like, what logically is the best way to, to, to handle sure X, Y, or Z. dose is just right, mixing it right. We, 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 exactly, right? So it's like, I don't know. It's uh, Daddy uh, needs his medicine. It's, <laughs> I guess. A little bit of that. Yeah. So at any rate, that's what I'm, that's what I'm stuck on. What about you, Andrew? So uh, I, I I'm going through my kind of my own. Uh, I, 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 I'm I'm at the point where I could stop, but I'm not going to stop. I mentioned this a while ago. iTunes illusion of control. So is the first iTunes? Step. No, no. I, I can tell you the point. I was ready to stop. iTunes has as a bundle special all the James Bond movies, all the Eon productions. Oh, which means no, never say never again. No wacky casino, original Casino Royale, or the one with the American version. But all the Eon productions, which is you know the Connery, except for Never Say Never, because that's not Eon. But anyways, twenty like twenty six James Bond movies, right? Right, all like all twenty three, all the original, all the James Bond movies, right? The real so, ones, starting from Doctor No, ending at Quantum of Solace. So for ninety nine bucks, you can have all of them on your Apple TV. Ninety nine bucks. I know some people like Blu-ray, all this. I travel. I don't want to carry discs around. I don't carry stuff. I don't like stuff. I don't like physical things. I like to know it's on my iPhone, my iPad, or my Apple TV, whatever. So I got all of those. I bought all those, and I decided I would do another Bond marathon. I think I did one years ago, but see, I'm going to watch every single one in order, starting at Dr. No. How does it stand up? Oh, the early ones stand up fantastic. Oh, I mean, great. Oh, for movies that were made in the '60s or whatever, I think they're great. I think they're really, I think they hold up really, really well. You know, you, you're you're watching something from that era, and you have to appreciate that and understand that. And and I I take this opportunity to go back and look at things you know that I didn't you know pay attention to before. Like I think I, I mentioned this on another podcast was you know in Goldfinger they load Goldfinger's car into an airplane, and then they fly across the English Channel, and that was an actual car ferry service that existed in the '60s. Wow. Which is just, Incredible. So anyhow, going forward, so now I've made up, I just started uh, For Your Eyes Only. Now what's interesting is at the very end of uh, The Spy Who Loved Me, they say, Spy Who Loved Me, they say, James Bond will return in For Your Eyes Only. But that wasn't the next Bond movie. What? That came uh, I out? think I know what this one is. It was, it was Moonraker, right? Yep. Because the same summer that For Your Eyes Only came out, a little movie called Star Wars happened. Oh, snap. Everybody went space crazy. And so they're like, forget For Your Eyes Only. Bond's got to go to space. And that's where Moonraker happened, as Justin points out. Wow. And Um, so – go ahead. Well, just fun fact, uh, For Your Eyes Only was, I believe, the first time I saw, saw a girl's butt. Uh, at the end, they they're they're scuba diving naked, and I'm like, oh my god, that's a girl's butt. 
Yeah, I just love those. Yeah, those opening credit sequences too. You're just hoping for a hint of boob or something. (laughs) (laughs) I hope I can see it, you know. Um, So yeah, uh, I'm enjoying it. I very much. It's interesting to watch the evolution of that, and and you certainly see the tonal change of what happened with with it going from the Connery era, and then more, and then more becoming, you know, the introduction of a lot more slapstick. And- yeah, I, I I feel like uh like much much like you know you you never forget your first Doctor uh, in Doctor Who. Uh, I I feel like uh, for good or for ill. Roger Moore is my James Bond, right? He was, but then Connery became. I I, he, I used to be. Oh, Moore's Bond for me. My father looked at me like you. You're <laughs> and then I started watching the old Connery Bonds, and Connery became Bond for me. Yeah. I rug rug on top and all. Dude, I, Connery, it's Connery, man. I mean, he's he's. So, here's the thing. I and Roger Moore, by the way, is like dude. A person, you know, like, like like to me, the quintessential uh, quintessential Bond movie is is Octopussy. Like uh, like that. Well, that was a great one. Plus, also, it's fun to say because it's well, well. Here's the thing. Like Moore as a person is supposed to be like a wonderful human, but like more like the Moore Bond. It's like they had this pattern of literally. It's like he's got to have three. He conquests three girls, and it could literally be he walks into a hotel room. I mean, it could, I mean, you could have a scene there where you get into an elevator, and it could be a complete strange woman like, oh, the elevator's stuck. Well, I know how we're going to pass this time. <laughs> he walks out, you know, fixing his tie, and she looks you know, satisfied. It became such a joke in those movies that, you know, he's just, he's just going to, and it's like, and we're always going to have him get caught at the very end, you know, having, it just, so many jokes. But, like, the best, my favorite Bond villain I have to I realize probably was Nick Knack. Wait, who is that one? Herbie Villachez. Wait, what? No. Uh, what, what movie was that in? That was Band of the Golden Gun. Oh, no. Yeah, I did not see that one. That's oh, amazing. you got to see. That was he. So, you know, Tattoo from Fantasy Island. Sure, sure. The Henchman. And by the way, fascinating guy, Troubled Life. Guess who is supposed to be working on doing a biographical movie of him? Uh, his wife? Dinklage? Dinklage. No way. Yes. I mean, if you're Peter Dinklage and you have, like, you know, at this point, you have about as much of a blank check in Hollywood as you're going to have to do your passion project. Like, what's what? Like, you have like your handful of roles that uh, that you want to do. It's like, it's like Don Cheadle talks about like whenever he gets like some career heat, he always tries to make the his Miles Davis movie. Because yeah. he's like, I can play Miles Davis. I want to play Miles Davis. I'm the guy that can play Miles Davis. And it's just a matter of like when he's on a, a hot enough project that he can make it happen. So if you're Peter Dinklage, if now's the only time you can make your Herbie Villachez movie. Well, I, 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 I don't know. Uh, part of me absolutely adores the idea that uh, uh, Peter Dinklage, with his amazing Shakespearean accent, will, uh, will uh, well, I suppose it's time to get ready for my role. <gasps> The plane, the plane. <laughs> so what, what's, what's funny, though, is like if you watch Moonraker and watch Michael Lonsdale speak, who's Drax, who's the, the, the villain of that, the proto-Elon Musk, you know, if he were bad, you listen to him speak, and it, it's like he's Peter Dinklage. It's amazing. Speaking of which, uh, d- did I read something correctly? And forgive me, I'm going off half-cocked here because I only half remember it. But, but I, I believe uh, the actor who played... Flash Gordon in the 1970s uh, campy Flash Gordon movie, I, I thought I read somewhere that every single one of his lines was redubbed. Is, is, that, is that correct? 
entirely possible. Yeah. Yes, I believe so. I think that was in the in the Star Wars book. Yeah, I, I, I guess that's 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 where I'm remembering that from. Um, yeah, look, I'm looking it up right now. Things you didn't know about uh, the making of Flash Gordon. Let me see. Sam Jones, the Highwayman. A lot of Sam Jones, uh, a lot of Sam Jones lines ended up being dubbed by an impersonator, according to Hodges. I was very fond of Sam, but here's what happened: we did the main shooting up until Christmas, and then we stopped for the break. After Christmas, I came back and did all the second unit stuff too. Um, huh? Crazy. Not much, but some. Okay, so some of them were redubbed. Okay, so it wasn't. It was just a, a scheduling thing. Yeah, I mean, he, yeah, he he often, you know, you're in post production and you need to get a quick line or two or something like that. And either if you have somebody else can do the line for you, then you do that. Um, how did we get onto this? I'm just questioning. Yeah, no, sorry, uh, we were talking about uh, doubling over stuff and uh, things. Uh, I went sideways. That's on the me. original Bond movies, by the way. Like the first couple ones, some of the females were completely dubbed over too. So, Doctor okay. No, whatever her lines were, you know, the, so it, it relates. I like the fact that you brought it for a full circle. I tried. I tried. So anyhow, um, Bond movies, that's my pick. And uh, we'll see if I can make it all the way through. Right on. I think you can. Again. Gentlemen, all right. Before I tell you my opinion of how this has been, uh, last episode, Brian and I stood around, stood around, stayed around, whatever, hung around, and we chatted a bit about just, you know, career stuff. Entertainment. Oh, yeah, well, I mean, call it call it what it was. It became the Brian and Andrew self help hour, which uh, which I felt a little bit weird during. But man, did we get a lot of positive feedback on that? People really dug that. So after we call an end of the show, we might take a quick break. I might, you know, run to the restroom. I'm just gonna throw that out there. Yeah, I'm human. Uh, I figure if you guys want, we stick around a little bit. We maybe do a little bit more talk like this. Maybe Justin, just Justin, I've done this before. We've talked about some creative stuff, things like that. We can do that. And people want to throw questions into the chat room or on Twitter. We'll try to handle it. But that's what's happening right now. We're going to end this right now. I'm going to say it's been weird.